now it is time for the round table. So we've got a question here. And the invitation is for you to look at this, think about it. And if you feel like you would um, have an answer that you would like to share verbally, we invite you to, to turn on your microphone. Even if your camera's off, you can still turn on the microphone to participate. And if you think of it, at the end of what you say, you could um, just let us know if you want us to include it in our podcast. The podcast is public, it's audio only, but we only include people's voices if they specifically tell us yes. Uh, go ahead and include me. So the question, where do you practice curiosity and imagination in your faith? And just to get the ball rolling, I will say that for me, I practice this curiosity and imagination thinking outside the box, I hope that counts, in my concept of God. For me, there has been a moving away from me, God. There is I and there is they. And the, um, the imagination has been in not othering God so much. What would that look like? Is that heresy? Does it line up with other things that... I know, I think, I believe. And so that has been an area of curiosity and imagination for me. Anyone else, please feel free to unmute yourself. And we'd love to hear from you. Or you can put something in the chat and I can mention it myself for you. Ah, we are a subdued group this morning, and that's okay. Hi, Josh. Hey. Hey. Um, so how, how how I practice curiosity, or Rick as well, is we've been we listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books, and I think that's part of what expands your mind around your image of God and how that relates to to us personally. Ah, great. Thanks, Christine. Some of the ones we listen to are the Bible for normal people. Um, oh, I can't think of them all, but that's, that's a big one for me. So, yeah. Brilliant. Yes, I know that one. Pete Entz. I've got a few in the chat here. I'm going to rattle through them here. Um, one person said, I find I'm able to be more curious and playful when I read and learn about other religions. It gets me out of certainty mode. Someone else that said they are, they practice curiosity and imagination in meditation and reading different viewpoints, different than the viewpoints that this person might hold. And oh man, we are on a theme today. The next one is uh, searching for asking questions about how other beliefs and faith practices are similar to my own. And then finally, someone else, poetry. I'm not mentioning the names because then I don't need their permission to include it in the podcast. I hope that works. <laughs> I got to have a fun way of um, listening with some curiosity this week. Someone had um, 
ordered a, a number of kids books and um, and they sent um, six different families that they uh, the names of six different families that they were going to give the books to and they asked well this is funny they they asked if um uh if brad could sign them and like do a little blessing or whatever but you know if brad was really busy maybe i could do it it's like because i'm not busy but anyways <laughs> um that's an aside um but i i did kind of feel like god was saying no go ahead like listen for them and so with a sense of um curiosity and anticipation I did that and I just shared a brief little picture I had for each family and now I'm actually super curious about how that lands for all of these kids mm. and their parents as uh as they listen together for I didn't say what the meaning was I just gave them a picture to listen to together um and that's not a usual part of my week but that was fun this week ah brilliant anyone else i know that i have noticed um canada geese and their little ones and ducks and their ducklings and how different those mothers behave with and and the, i think the metaphor can work both ways when you've got the um the parents of the, the canada geese there's one in the front, there's all the little ones, and then there's the one behind. But every time I see a mother duckling, duck with its ducklings, oh my word, those ducklings are everywhere. And they're going this way and that way and this way. And, and the mom is just kind of like swimming around behind, sometimes trying to get, grab this one and it comes back. And I think you can take that metaphor for God for both of those, I think. Anyone else like to chime in. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for participating. We are going to move now to communion with Dawn. Sorry, that didn't work very quickly. Good morning, everyone. Um, I am in beautiful Birch Bay, Washington to you this weekend. So I'm here with my daughter. So Damien's not with me, but hopefully uh, I could do this by myself. <laughs> so um, when I was thinking about today, I was just kind of thinking, I was feeling really heavy about just everything, everything <laughs> that's going on right now in the world. It seems like every day there's something new that hits us in the news cycle and I catch myself feeling like really just worrisome how are we going to get through it when we seem to be so divided and and there's just so much information out there so so I, I kind of felt I really just needed to simplify things today and just really just picture like all of us at the table together just really seeing each other and and the one nice thing I think about Zoom sometimes is that we can actually see each other uh, face to face. And um, so, so I just think let's just envision ourselves together at a huge table, just our community, really feeling uh, welcome, feeling together. And 
just knowing that uh, Jesus, he's here with us too. And um, we're not alone. So he's right in it with us because he has, he's been here. He's experienced it and he experiences it with us every day. So uh, thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us, for not forgetting us during the lament. We want you with us during all the times in our lives because you understand and you experience it with us. Please show us your ways. Amen. Please partake in the, in, in the elements when you're ready. Good morning. Um, I get to do something fun today. There's a, there are things about being a pastor that are uh, really challenging at times, and it just it just goes with the territory. But then there are also things that happen in the life cycle of a faith community that are actually just really fun and worth celebrating. So today is one of those fun things, a milestone that not only is significant for one of us, but actually is significant for all of us. So I have the honor of letting you all know that the steering team has decided to give Karina Lowen, who's about to speak to us, the title of pastor in our community. We feel it's appropriate as we took stock of all the ways that Karina has led, supported, and cared for folks in our community. In another word, how she has already been pastoring. What I appreciate is that Karina shared her gifting without the title. So we are really only uh, validating what we have observed. And in my experience, this is the various, the very healthiest way to bring leaders into a community. And a, it's like a grassroots rising up. So it's my honor to pray and bless, uh, do a blessing over Karina this morning as she continues in her role of caring and serving our bridge community. And I would encourage you if you have any words of encouragement affirmation or blessing um, to please send her a text or an email or somehow get a hold of her to share that with her. Uh, Jesus, please bless Karina with a sense of your leading and not one of obligation. Hold her heart when it breaks for others and restore it with your grace. Give her eyes to see what you are up to and ears to hear what you are whispering. Help her to discern when no is the right response 
and when yes is the direction you are moving. Show her a shady tree she can sit under with you and share with her the wisdom that you hold. Give her a cup that never empties, not so that we can or that she can be wrung out for the sake of our community, but so that she will never thirst for your presence or your righteousness. As a community, we say yes to your yes, Karina, and we welcome you as a pastor in our midst. Amen. Thanks. Um, it's fun having a room full of people here to speak to, so it may not be entirely silent um, this morning. And thank you for that affirmation and that welcome in that role. I'm looking forward to just more of what's already been happening. So with that, I'm really hoping I can figure out how to find. There it is. My what? my sermon for this week. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this weekend, a few of us went to the eye doctor. It had been almost two years for some of us, four for others, and it was time to check our prescriptions. So it's really no surprise that these 45-year-old eyes um, needed to increase their progressives a little bit more so that I can read, you know, without like, you know, like playing the trombone with my glasses. So um, that wasn't a surprise. My lens needed to be changed. But it was a surprise to hear that one of my kids had had a really big change in their prescription. Well, actually, maybe not even that was a surprise because that happens to growing kids all the time. But what was a surprise was that as far as I can remember, this kid hadn't said anything about their eyes being bothered or being blurry or difficult. And because it dawned on me that this was the perfect segue for my sermon this morning, I didn't bother checking to see if they had in fact told me and my 45 year old brain had just forgotten because that's also completely possible. But the point is this, sometimes we can have trouble seeing something clearly and not know it. We can just get used to the fuzziness, to the lack of focus and definition in the world around us. And we need to inspect the lenses that we're using every once in a while, right? So lenses aren't good or bad. Glasses aren't good or bad. They just are. Some of our lenses we're aware of and others are just so a part of and I'm speaking of metaphorical lenses at this point, but they're so a part of the water that we're swimming in that they're really hard to see how they affect our vision. But here's the thing. We see how we see, how we're taught to see. Our perception of what is clear is only really tested if we try something different and see how it changes what we see. Sometimes trying a new lens can feel super disruptive and even scary. And for those of you that have joined the Progressive or Bifocals Club, you know what I'm talking about. When I first upgraded my lenses, it was super disorienting and even nauseating. And it, and it felt like you're like tripping over dust bunnies and invisible rocks and boulders, right? So it can take time for even a good and helpful lens change to feel normal. So really what I'm doing today is inviting us to be curious together. I'm going to set the stage for um, one of the passages out of the women's lectionary for the whole church by Will de Gaffney. And I'm going to name some of the built-in lenses that I've discovered I 
have come to the text with in the past. And maybe in that you want to think about the lenses that maybe you bring. And I'm trying to notice the fuzziness or clarity these lenses give me when I look at the text. And then I'm going to invite us actually to together, this is a lens I've used before, but look for the movement of power within a text. And I've just found, especially when I come to a text and I'm like, oh, I know what I've always thought, or I know the way I used to think, and maybe I, I have this sense that it's not really helpful anymore. This, this lens of power is something that was taught to me by Renee August, who's a teacher and a priest, a woman of color in South Africa. It, it has been such a helpful lens to pick up and disrupt maybe some of the less helpful lenses that I have been given in the past. Um, anyway, I, I just hope that you'll share with me at the end what you notice, maybe what wonderings rise to the surface for you in our Q&R at the end. So um, the text that I'm gonna navigate today is from 1 Peter 2, four to 10. Um, the first little bit of disruptive lens was when in two of my different translations, it said that the author was unknown and not first Peter, whoever he was. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But um, that was a disruptive lens to see added to the biblical text when I was reading a variety of them. And so let me disrupt you with that one too. I was just like, oh, so probably like a disciple of Peter's or someone who was taught by Peter or something like that. But anyways, or maybe a woman who we had to call Peter, you know, because... I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing out, I'm just being curious, guys. I just don't know. Um, anyways, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, it says, come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believes, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So before we try on the new lens, I want to identify some of the ones that I discovered that I bring. It really, this is the act of bringing things that want to stay hidden or in the shadows or subconscious, doing the work to kind of bring those things into consciousness. And this is the beauty of changing our lenses, of admitting that we have them. Naming them is good confession. It's the starting point of transformation. We don't actually have to try harder so much as we have to become good noticers. Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Anthony DeMello said, what you're aware of, you're in control of. What you're not aware of is in control of you. So that's the power of naming a lens, of looking for the movement of power in the text. So one lens that I think was, uh, is really important for, for us to identify is the Western lens. Um, the Western lens is, it's not good or bad. It just is. Um, but it is very individualistic. 
And, and it's, so it's the type of lens that when we read something, we ask, what does this say about me? What's the application for me? What's the meaning for me? What is, who is, is that individual person sinning or are they doing good things? Jesus is my personal savior. Um, those kind of ways of interpreting are very individualistic. Contrast that with the majority of the world, but especially the, the culture that it was written in, they're a collectivistic culture, which means the individual is determined by the collective group think, the collective way of being. And so when we hear words like you or um, your, nobody that heard that or read that would think me, they would think we. So it, that it's, it's really important if we want to enter into a story that is broader than our own, that we just identify that important difference of individualism versus collectivism. And another lens that, is, um, that I want to identify is the lens of privilege. Part of being in an individualistic culture is that we want to put ourselves at the center of every story. So the first thing I do when I come to a text is I want to remind myself of the lenses I wear that are easy to forget or ignore. And I do this because it helps to identify the power I have and the ways I might be tempted to overlook or misread things in the text. I'm white, married, cisgender female, born and raised in safety, far from war and extreme political conflict in the 20th century in a Western evangelical Christian context. Those all affect how I see how I hear, it affects how much privilege I have. It's not good or bad, it just is. Seeing it and naming it helps me hopefully see power differentials, different social or political contexts between my experience and that of the people named in the text or even that of other people around me. Um, it will help move my perspective of who I might identify with in the story. My Renee August, who is one of the teachers, was saying she was in a room and they're doing this collective reading of scripture. And one guy kept talking about how he identified with the woman with the issue of blood, like the one who touches the hem of Jesus's robe. And, and Renee just had to really gently come into that moment and just say, like, have you asked a woman what it's like to bleed? Have you, have you been on the outskirts of power and, and ability in society? And he was like, oh, no. And she's like, so maybe for right now, maybe don't identify with that person. Maybe look for in the crowd who's had an experience more like yours, and there might be something new that emerges. So I've got lots of privilege. Aside from being the wrong gender, which is no small thing when we're talking about, you know, like the royal priesthood, but, but still there is room for me to look for those societies and, and people in our culture that have been pushed to the margins and lean into and learn from their perspectives. The third one, this is the objectivity lens. This is a lens I really, really don't like anymore but it's extraordinarily Western, extraordinarily evangelical, extraordinarily fundamentalist, and extraordinarily what I was saturated in for years. Um, I was taught to pursue it and love it. And as far as I can tell it literally, I just don't know what it has produced 
good in me. It's great for like a science project, not so much great for like people and social documents like the Bible. So I, I just, I invite you to identify that objectivity lens, um, like, and smash it into a million little pieces. Um, there just isn't such a thing. Objectivity is merely how I see myself and I tend to see myself as right. We can think we're being objective, but usually objectivity is what happens is when privilege and tradition have a baby. And um, when we make that the goal or the standard for what babies are supposed to be like, it's a pretty ugly baby. I'm just saying. There, um, no, no, yeah, well, anyways. I was, I was gonna go into discussing whether or not there are ugly babies, but we all know. Okay, so in the past, with those lenses, I interpreted this text in two ways, and they're completely contrary to one another, but I somehow held them at the same time. So um, I hope maybe you'll laugh with me, maybe cry a little bit for my well-intended and overly earnest self that didn't know that um, there was another way. So here's the first way I internalize this. I am a priest, me. I don't need anyone else to be the temple of God. I'm the temple, you're the temple. We're all temples built on the word of God, like the Bible, the cornerstone of our faith. People that don't like Jesus and who don't build their life on the Bible and who are not like me, they are wrong because God made them to do that. I'm an important and special person because I belong to God. I do the right things because I'm a priest and I'm a priest because I do the right things. And I'm special to God because I don't stumble. Way one. Second way. So that's maybe through the context of evangelicalism and like the church cultures that were very well intended that I was raised in. Then I have my experience as a woman in the church. I am a priest in a technical sense. Spiritually, maybe, but really only one day in heaven. What I do not have access to is the ability to really hear God dependably and understand things unless they are okayed by my male pastors who actually know all the things. Women pastors and priests are at best flaky and at worst evil Jezebel sent as stumbling blocks to try and destroy the temple. I'm also definitely not called or gifted to be a pastor or involved in ministries. Those inclinations and leanings are stumbling blocks for me and for others that I must overcome with the help of God. I have to work hard to be different so that I can receive enough mercy to stay special to God. Nobody told me this. It was just obvious. It was the fruit the lenses of my faith gave me. I wanted to say our lenses matter. They affect our subconscious and the choices we make and how we interact with others. Maybe you can identify some other lenses you've, you've seen other texts with. And I just invite you without shame or judgment, just notice them and do the magic thing that optometrists do when they say, which is clearer, lens one or two, two or three, three or four. Try in a lens that looks for the movement of power maybe, and let's see what it uncovers. I'm gonna read the text again. Look for the way power moves. Power can be geographical, social, economic, political. It can, there can be any way that power, different types of power move around. 
come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in it will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious, but for, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So in studying this text, the first shift that I noticed was the power of geographical power shifts. This, this text is being written to displaced believers living as foreigners in a foreign place. It doesn't say they're exiled, but they are far from home and far from what's familiar. So what does hearing about their belonging to and being a part of a spiritual house being built in Zion, which is the place where God dwells? So even though they are, as it were, far from home, they are a part of the place God dwells. I wonder if they would have heard, there's nowhere you can go where you do not belong to God to the eternal source of love and the ground of being, wherever you are, you can be rooted and grounded in love and belong to God and to one another. The second power shift that I noticed was the power of the collective. Different than an individualistic lens, I wonder if they would have heard a reaffirmation of their belonging to broader community. Because this, I, I don't think this is just Jewish people. This isn't just Israelites. This is the early church, which means it's made up of everybody. Jews, Gentiles, women, slaves, the able-bodied, the disabled. They're all together in this community, all participating in the life of the church in a way that is really disruptive to a society that depends on collective stratification. So yes, they were individual stones, but the spiritual house that they were a part of was the point. The strength and beauty and power of the house is in the blocks being anchored to the secure and unshakable cornerstone. There's a translation that says in verse nine, where, um, which is the kind of when it returns uh, at the end to, you know, you're chosen and all that. It says you're chosen kindreds instead of saying you're a chosen race, as other translations do. And I, I love kindreds because it's probably more how it would have been heard because the construct of race as we know it wasn't really an idea back then. But what would it be like to hear your kindreds of the same kind? And this is why I love the, the, the term the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of God because it's about a broader non stratified belonging. It's a different type of collective than society offered. So the frustration of all dominating power was how those that followed the way of Jesus didn't care anymore about class. They treated 
everybody with dignity and respect. If people needed help, they helped them. If, if people had a word to give, whether they were women, slaves, men, didn't matter, they were able to give it. The nuns of stratified society could belong. The next movement of power that I saw, and this one felt really big, was the, the power, the movement of the power of tradition. Leviticus 8 to 10 lays out the Israelites' understanding of what they thought the priesthood was meant to look like. So I've taken kind of this summary from the cultural world of the Bible, which is a really helpful book if you want to get, um, uh, I guess, more of a social anthropological perspective. They offer this picture of what the priesthood looked like. The temple was the central feature of the religious life of the people in the New Testament. So all the way from Leviticus through the New Testament, here are some core tenets of what they thought God was telling them the priesthood was. It had enclosures leading progressively inward to the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. Gentiles of all types couldn't even come into the temple enclosure, like literally on pain of death, could not come in. Women and the diseased could come just inside, but just outside the temple proper. Ritual, ritually pure Jews or Jewish men um, and their wives could go up to the outer temple, but only the priests could enter the place where God dwelled. So First Peter is writing, I think, about an all-access pass for everyone. That's a serious movement of power from this structure of progressive entrance into the presence of God. Think about how many centuries hierarchy, caste systems, exclusive nobility by birth was practiced under the banner of God said it should be this way. Did God change? Or was Jesus just clearing the air, changing their lens? And I wondered, what was the power movement like for those who had lacked access, who had been denied empowerment? to hear that we are the temple. Together, we are the sanctuary. That's, first of all, a very anti-Western concept. It's really different than I'm the temple. I mean, maybe I am, but what if I alone am an incomplete expression? What if there's something unique and wonderful that can only be experienced and expressed with all of us, the wholeness of God in the fullness of people? What would it have been like to hear we are stones anchored in the cornerstone. Our cornerstone knows rejection as we have been rejected. But in God, we are found together. We have permission to approach God, to enter into the Holy of Holies. It's not just for a special group of people who can speak for us. When someone experiences God, they've entered the Holy of Holies. I don't get to argue with that anymore. It's not just for the special group of people who can speak for us, approach for us. We, all of us, have an all-access pact to God. And in our own way, too. Like, Jews were free to be Jews. Gentiles were be free to be Gentiles. One group didn't have to conform to the traditions and standards of another group. And, like, modern-day people, we're, like, super good at this now, right? Like, we don't do that anymore except always. So I wonder if some of the people there looked around the room where this letter was being read, a group of diverse classes that according to the societal rules should be separate, classes of people based on your lineage, 
it's part of what caused so much trouble that they refused to go by that, right? So this letter is like an affirmation of the power shifts that they had said yes to. Nobody could have more spiritual power or more spiritual access than another. And then I thought, what was it like for those who had always had special access? Because guys, the movement of power is rarely neutral. You've heard it said, when when you have too much power, equality feels like oppression. Equanimity feels like loss. So the priests, the one who offered incense, prayers, sacrifices, they were the direct line from God to their people. That power balance had hurt. That shift probably hurt a little bit. It probably was experienced as a loss. And any parts of themselves that had been defined, even by their good intentions to obey God and help their community, would have to be reoriented. But maybe... I wonder if, as they lived their way into this all-access pass way of living, they noticed a little relief. It wasn't all on them anymore. It was all of us together, each doing our part, living into and sharing the gifts of God within each of us for the benefit of all of us. And then there was, I'm, I'm not even certain about this, but I saw something that felt like an interesting shift in the power dynamic between God and people. I wondered if it was a movement of power. You know, the verse where it talks about the stumbling blocks, and there's many versions that say something like they stumbled because they were predestined to, or like they were, it was what they were made to do. My evangelical lens would interpret that like God creates some people to follow God and then he creates some people to like not follow God. And the ones created to not follow God, do everything wrong and cause problems for themselves and others. That word predestined is loaded with modern day baggage in the Western world. A better and maybe more helpful word for us is inevitable. So what if this means that there's a shift of power away from God made you to be wicked and stumble and actually towards personal empowerment, personal responsibility. This isn't maybe a curse, but maybe it's like more like science, a statement of the way things are, like gravity. If you toss a ball up in the air, it is predestined to fall to the ground. We don't blame God for that. We understand that if we toss a ball or an apple or a brick, we better be able to catch it or move out of the way because it's going to fall back down. And I think maybe that's what it's like in the kingdom of God. God doesn't coerce or force. What lenses do you value or did they value more than the living stone of God? The one who rejects no one, though they were rejected by the powerful and those who loved their traditions of exclusion and hierarchy more than the life and liberation for all. If you love tradition more than Jesus, and more than the self-giving, other-centering, radically forgiving ways of Jesus, you are going to trip over them every which way. If you think you can build the kingdom of God with the power of patriarchy, the power of politics, the power of coercion, good luck to you. You're going to harm the dignity and humanity of all creation and create a miserable existence for you and for them. So in this scenario, I saw the reanimating of power that says how I see the world, 
who I let in, who we let in, who we say can belong, what systems we participate in is within my power to see and name. If I have power, let me leverage it to remove those stumbling blocks, to do the inner work of naming that which is counter Christ and grow instead in the ways of a living stone. Having all people belong to the priesthood, having all people be God's precious possession doesn't negate belonging and preciousness. I, I get that there can be this feeling of like, well, if everybody's precious, nobody's precious. But I wonder instead if it's an invitation to try on new lenses again and again so we can see in new ways how our differences bring strength, expand our ability to love and enlarge our capacity to prepare, restore, and literally be remembered to God, ourselves, and one another. Last week, Eden shared the really, really good news that everyone is included and that there is enough for the whole of the world to be loved and fed and nourished by the love of God lived out in the ways of Jesus. This text in 1 Peter, I think, is more of that same good news. We're all included in the house of God. We're a part of it. And in fact, I think it cannot be built without all of us together. So then these other questions started coming up in me. Who are we missing? Where can we grow? What lenses, traditions, excess power are we holding on to that, that is keeping us or that we're loving more than God? It's Pride Month right now. And I can't help but feel so grateful again for the beauty, strength, and integrity that our queer siblings in Christ add to this community. We did not always have eyes to see it. And for that, I ask forgiveness. We were bereft of mercy. But through the love of the queer community, through your forgiveness and your willingness to share your beautiful lives with us, we have received God's mercy through you. And I am so eternally thankful. And then to this church that has chosen to trust me as one of your pastors. In some ways, there are so many wounds and self-perceptions that are being healed in me by the beauty of who you are and how you've loved me back to life again. I am being repaired and remembered here. I am learning to live into the fullness of who I am, of how I am in the world, because of the way you all magnify and amplify the good news and the life-changing love of Jesus. You're such a gift to me, and my prayer is that we would continue to be conduits of mercy to and for one another. So thank you all for who you are. And then to all of us who call the bridge our home, my prayer for us is that we would continue to examine the lenses we bring, that we would grow in our connection and collective sense of who we are in this time and place in history. What spiritual house are we building together? How can we increase the experience of belonging and being built into a home together. And, you know, maybe Abbotsford isn't like Zion, but I hope for all of us, whether we are part of the literal Abbotsford community or those of you who call the bridge your church from far away, that we would remember that if the bridge is your spiritual home, wherever you are in the world, together we belong to God and find the fullness of our expression as a community. May we be able to say to ourselves, like the people that heard this letter far from home in Asia Minor, once you were a people, once you were not a people, you were not connected. You didn't 
belong to one another, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's what I saw. Those are the questions that came up in me. That's the movement of power I saw. Those are the lenses I identified. And as we go into q and I'm, I'm really just curious, what, what came up for you? What did you notice? Was there something else that we can share with one another that would be helpful? So that's it, amen. So thank you, God, for this community, for these people. Make us mindful or, or give us, invite us to assess our lenses, to notice where power is moving in and around us. And um, thank you for this spiritual house that you are building and for the important part that each, each living stone here plays in it. Amen. <laughs>